through to Malachi. Uh, But what of new revelation? What of new books? What of the epistles that had been penned? And there were two key criteria in that. Uh, Firstly, does this writing have an apostle as its author? The apostle being viewed as the equivalent of the Old Testament prophet. And of course, we have books such as Mark and Luke and Acts that were penned by uh, Mark and Luke, strangely enough. And these uh, writings, these books, uh, were, are seen as being penned under the supervision or superintendence of the apostles themselves. Uh, Mark, it is believed, wrote an account from the perspective of Peter uh, regarding uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is another criteria, antiquity. Has the church historically recognized that in this writing that God has spoken to His people, that God has inspired those who penned that book, and therefore the church, using this criteria, set out to determine uh, the canon of the Word of God? And the Westminster Divines, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, verified that canon, uh, which is the same one we use today, those 66 books, but it had been affirmed many, many centuries before. And so we have a confidence that what we possess is the full canon of Scripture. We also consider the qualifications regarding the canon of Scripture. Uh, We uh, mentioned that there is a divine quality, a divine quality in the books of Scripture, and we can see that we've benefited from it. We've been blessed by it as we've read those books and studied those books and heard sermons from those books over many, many years. There's a beauty and an excellency in Scripture. There's a unity. There's a harmony. And there's also a corporate reception, because not only has, have these books that divine quality that has been applied to us individually, but the church has recognized that. And the church has recognized that these books are of God. And the church was guided by the Spirit of God to recognize that these are the books that God has inspired. It is also authors that had authority. We mentioned that briefly already with the apostles. And then there is a blessed message, simply the message of Christ and His gospel. For the Savior said, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And when we look at the canon of Scripture, there is that unified message. There is that simple, singular message of Christ and His gospel. And therefore, the true canon of Scripture is a canon that testifies of Christ. And that brings us then into our third thought regarding the canon of Scripture, the rejection of the Apocrypha. The rejection of the Apocrypha. For when we consider the canon of Scripture, it is not a mere recognizing that there are 66 books that God has inspired, but there is also, in part, a rejection of those books, a recognition and a rejection of those books that God has not inspired, that God has not made part of Holy Scripture. And there are a number of books. There are Old New Testament uh, books that were penned around the time of the early church, and there has been debate and discussion over them. Uh, There are many uh, that have uh, certainly been rejected. Uh, But when we think of the Apocrypha itself, it is more commonly referred to as uninspired, on canonical literature from the Old Testament period, 
And from the intertestamental period, the intertestamental period being that time between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew's gospel, around 400 years or so. And so these books cover part of that time and also part of the, New Test or the Old Testament period. The Roman Catholic Church accepts these books as inspired, whereas the Protestant Church, the Reformed Church, has historically rejected them on the basis that they were never accepted in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. They were never endorsed by Christ or His apostles. And while they were included in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they were rejected because the Reformers believed that their Scripture, the Scripture they translated, the Scripture they used, that Old Testament Scripture would be translated not from the Greek, so therefore it would be a translation from Hebrew to Greek to English or whatever language, but rather they would go back to the Hebrew and translate from the Hebrew to the English. And of course, that would be a far better translation because something is always lost in translation. Different languages have different words that mean various things, and sometimes you have a word in a language that means something very strong, but it's hard to find an equivalent word in another language. And so, if you are going to uh, translate even a novel today, you wouldn't translate it from German and then into the French and use that French translation to translate into the Spanish and then use that Spanish translation to eventually come to English. You'd skip out those, the French and the Spanish, and you go straight from the German to the English, uh, because there is a better purity there regarding the translation and understanding what the writer originally had in mind. And the same is true here with the translation of the Word of God. They took the Hebrew, and the Hebrew Old Testament did not contain these extra books. And the Reformers believed that the Scripture, the canon of Scripture, the only Scripture that they accepted, those 66 books, were the basis, the foundation of doctrine. So therefore, when they were forming their doctrine and forming their beliefs and reforming the church, the books that were considered to be genuinely in the canon of Scripture were the books that formed their doctrine, not the ideas of man, not uninspired books that had been added or endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the New and Old Testament Scriptures as has been historically seen and believed on by the Church of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church has a belief in purgatory and in praying for the dead, two practices that are believed to have stemmed from writings in the Apocrypha itself. And so those practices being unwarranted in canonical Scripture were rejected by the Protestant reformers. However, for some reformers, the Apocrypha was not worthless. Martin Luther said that the book of Judith was a fine, good, holy, useful book, well worth reading by us Christians. He praised some other books as well. However, the line was drawn that this was not inspired Scripture. The line was drawn that doctrine was not to be taken from these books. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, we'll quote it in a moment, uh, recognizes that there is a historical value to these writings, but they are not inspired Scripture. The French Confession of Faith in 1559 listed the 66 books that we have today and said, we know these books to be canonical and the sure rule of our faith, not so much by the common accord and consent of the church 
as by the testimony and inward illumination of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to distinguish them from other ecclesiastical books, upon which, however useful, we cannot found any articles of faith. And so there was a belief in this confession that the church of Christ was not left up to themselves to distinguish which books were Scripture or not, but the Spirit of God worked, and the Spirit of God guided. And the Apocrypha, those other ecclesiastical books, were not part of Scripture, were distinguished from it. The Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith that we hold to, states that the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. And they made a big division in, in the sand, as it were. These books are not inspired. These books are not books we should be founding our doctrine upon. The Roman Catholic Church re reacted to the Protestant rejection of the Apocrypha at the Council of Trent that was set up to counter the Reformation. It sought to correct what it viewed as the Protestant error by reaffirming the Catholic canon of Scripture, which included these writings. There was a decree, a decree gave a warning. If anyone does not receive as sacred and canonical these books with all their parts as they have been read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, referring to the Apocrypha, unknowingly and deliberately rejects the above-mentioned traditions. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And so, if we hold to 66 books in the Old and New Testament, we reject the Apocrypha, we're all cursed this morning uh, because of the belief of the Roman Catholic Church. They set forth that these writings were Scripture. And so Protestants were threatened with condemnation for using a Bible that did not contain the Apocrypha. But Protestant churches continued then to insist that these books were not inspired Scripture. They were not. They did not claim to be the Word of God. They did not contain God's inspired Word to man. Interestingly, when the authorized version was first published in 1611, the King James Version, it included these non-canonical books because the King James Version at that time was predominantly an Anglican Bible that had been translated and published by the authority of the King of England. And this was during the Puritan period. The Puritans largely used the Geneva translation that was reformed in not having those extra books, and therefore the King James Version, interestingly, was rejected at first by many of the Puritans. It was published later without the Apocrypha, and it began to become more accepted within the Reformed Church. And, of course, the rest, the rest is history. It is greatly used of God. But originally, because of the influence not only in the the Catholic Church accepting these books, but separately the Anglican Church had a history in accepting these books and using these books, and it was included in the authorized version. And so these books are First and Second Esdras, referring to different parts of Ezra and Nehemiah in that, that period, Tobit, Judith, there's portions of Esther, there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, a book called Barak, 
One called The Song of the Three Children, the story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, first and second Maccabees, that we refer to that intertestamental period. And so these books are not part of the inspired Word of God. The American theologian A.A. Hodge, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, states that these books have no place in the Bible because, and he gives four reasons. We've mentioned some already, but he sets them out. They never formed a part of the Hebrew Scriptures. They were never quoted by Christ or the apostles. They were never embraced in the list of canonical books by the early fathers. And then he says the internal evidence presented by their contents disproves their claims. Of course, canonical Scripture has a unity. It has a message. It does not contradict itself. He said that none make any claim to inspiration, and some of them consist of childish fables and bad morals. And so, there is much more we could say, but there's a lesson here for us as the people of God to embrace God's canon of Scripture. It is important, and it is of vital significance to us to know the books that God has given to us, to read those books, to study those books, to seek out God's will in our life, to seek out God's teaching for us in the books that He has given. And that canon will have a consistent message, a message that is clear and not contradicted. And one of the great lessons then for us is we are not to add to Scripture. We're not to add to those books that God has given to us. Now, how do we add to Scripture? We add to the Word of God by adding the apocryphal books, by adding men's opinions and doctrines to those contained within the Word of God, by adding additional and incorrect meanings, an incorrect application to Scripture. We could say much about that over the years, how men have took the Word of God and have twisted it and changed it to mean all sorts of things, to support their particular view of whatever that might be, whether it's a social view, whether it is a theological view. And God's Word has been twisted and added to verses of Scripture that teach something of great importance, but yet someone comes along, they have their views on social issues, they have their views on theology, they take that verse, they twist it, they change it, and they add to God's Word a meaning that was never there in the first place. We are to take great care regarding that. We can add to God's Word by having our own little opinions and views, forcing those views on others, holding fast to them ourselves. But yet, the foundation is not Scripture. We can add to Scripture to exempt ourselves from certain commandments, to justify the breaking of certain commandments because of a situation we may find ourselves in, likely because of our own fault. We're adding to God's Word meanings that are not there. Dear believer, let our theology, let our views be formed by the Word of God itself. God has given us a complete canon. God has given us a canon that we can depend upon and trust. So let us not add to it. Let us take what God says, and by His Spirit may it be applied to our lives. And these thoughts on the importance and application of abiding by God's canon of Scripture brings us to our final thought here, the completion of God's revelation to man. 
the completion of God's revelation to man. Now, this is a series in and of itself, because we're dealing now with God's revelation having ended, having ceased that new revelation, whereas there are many within the church today who claim that that revelation is ongoing, that these spiritual gifts and signs and wonders that are all connected, it is still something that happens today. But the question arises in the context of Scripture here. How does the church today know that God will not add to the current Bible with a 67th book? In other words, how do we know that Scripture, these 66 books, represent a closed canon that is not open and being added to? And this is a big question today as we have Pentecostals, we have Charismatics that will add extra revelation from God. There are cults such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who have added to the Scriptures their own revelations and their own books and their own works. And Scripture, as we've read together, warns that no one should delete from or add to Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, coming back to that passage, "'You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you.'" In Deuteronomy 12, verse 12, it says, 12, verse 32, "'What things soever I command you, observe to do it, Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. In Proverbs 30, verse 6, we read, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Add, add not, add not. And there is this theme then within the Word of God that we're not to add to Scripture. The canon of Scripture is complete. And after these verses were penned, the canon, of course, was added to again and again, by the will of God. But now, it is our belief as a church, as a denomination, it's our belief that the Scriptures teach that that canon is now closed. It is now closed. When we think of these things, the Word of God closes with what? The revelation of John. It's a book that is unique to the Scripture because it describes what will happen in the future. The book of Genesis, as it were, bridges that gap between eternity past and the creation of time and the creation of this world and how God has created this world and how God governs this world. And Revelation then comes into the picture at the end of time. The world is ending. God will judge the world. Time has ended. And Revelation closes that revelation of God, telling us what will happen at the end. There are others as well, men who have compared the silence after Malachi to the silence after Revelation, and the conclusion being the canon of Scripture has been closed. Again, we could say there are no authorized prophets or apostles today in the New Testament sense. The office of apostle has ended. When we look at God's Word, the writers were apostles. They were prophets. The majority certainly were. But yet that is no longer the case 
today. And of course, we have those warnings in Scripture we read in Revelation, we read in Deuteronomy, do not add, do not add. And so, the thought of the canon being closed brings us to consider what is referred to as the cessation of special revelation, the ceasing of God's special revelation to man, because it is closed up and it is contained in the Scriptures. And that view is in direct contrast to the Pentecostal position and to the charismatic belief of continuationism, that God continues in His gifts, in tongues, in visions, in healings, in prophecies. But when we think of cessationism, that belief that these things have ended because the Word of God is now completed, that which is perfect has come, that the Word of God itself, God's revelation, is complete. It gives us a confidence that the canon has been closed. Everything in the Word of God is sufficient and necessary for us. If it were not closed, well, what information do we need? We do not have everything. God is continuing to give us information that we need. But yet we can depend this morning that God has given everything we need because the canon is closed. That revelation has ceased. John Calvin said that Christ gives His Spirit to the church, not for the task of inventing new and unheard of revelations, but of sealing our minds with that very doctrine which is commended by the gospel. And so, the continuation movement today, if we look at it, Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, there's a great diversity of beliefs, a great diversity of beliefs. But there are things we need to emphasize. And firstly, that Scripture must be received as God's truth. We must receive Scripture as God's truth. We must always distinguish between the apostles and other Christian leaders. If you go on Facebook and type in the word apostle, well, you'll get a whole list of all sorts of so-called apostles and so-called advertisements for so-called apostles coming. We must distinguish between the apostles and other Christian leaders. The apostles had unique power. They had unique authority. And that office ceased when the last apostle passed away. We must beware of false prophets working wonders. The Savior warned of this. We must be on our guard against false prophets. We must also seek the power of the Spirit. We must avoid extremes, of course, but we must desire His genuine work within our hearts and within our lives. And we must desire Him to guide us into knowing and believing, being blessed by all of God's revelation. This is a vast subject, but let me say this. The revelation of God comes to its grand climax, as it were, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. He, as one commentator penned it, is the grand finale of revelation. In the book of Hebrews, we find a great contrast between the old prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were mere men. Moses was a man. Abraham was a man. Christ is more excellent than the angels. Hebrews reminds us of that. The prophets were mere men, but He is the Son of God who was more excellent than they. More excellent than they. 
And the most fundamental reason for the cessation, the ceasing of revelation, is the sufficiency of Christ that is revealed in the Word of God. In Christ is the final revelation for mankind. So why do we need more? Why do some Christians, some very genuine Christians, seek something more than what God has already given? We do not need more, for Christ is the Word of God, and Christ has given us His Word. He has given us His Word. If, you, if we turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse 20, Ephesians 2 and the verse 20, it says here, regarding our salvation and being fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God, verse 20 tells us, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. And so, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus that their salvation, their faith, has been built upon the apostles and the prophets. They're the ones who've preached. They're the ones that taught the Word of God. But Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone, the chief part of that foundation. And the miracles in the Gospels, the miracles in the book of Acts, give evidence and verification to the message that was preached. There was no Scripture. Yes, the Old Testament was there, but in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Gospels, for example, Peter on the day of Pentecost, he quoted from the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't quote from the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John because those Gospels did not exist at that point in time. The miracle on Pentecost, that speaking in tongues, verified the message that Peter spoke. It gave that support. It gave that proof that what he was saying was true because we could hear him in our own language, the men said. The miracles gave evidence and verification to the message that was preached, a message that has Christ at the very cornerstone, a message that is revealed by God in Scripture. It is sufficient. It is necessary for us. When we think of continuationism, continuing these gifts, continuing God speaking. It puts people in bondage to human thoughts and human feelings and human emotions. Oh, if God spoke audibly and gave us all our own little revelation, what confusion there would be. God told me this. Oh, no, He told me the opposite. And someone else says, well, He told me something different entirely to what you're saying. So much confusion, so much confusion of man. And we do see that today. The canon of Scripture is closed. It is complete. It is a settled word that we can fully depend upon. God is a God, as Scripture says, that does not change. He does not change. Man will change God. Man will change God. I was reading comments yesterday about an ice hockey player who refused to wear a pride jersey at a warm-up for a game uh, last night. And his public statement was shared uh, by uh, the team. It was shared I think it was on, on Twitter, and there were all sorts of comments. 
He claimed uh, to love Christ, to follow in Christ. Christ had died for his sins, and therefore he could not wear this. And there are those who came on and spoke about love. God loves all. The main message of Christ is love. The main message of Christ when He came into this world and when He went around Galilee preaching, what was it? It was repent. Repent of sin. Love certainly is part of that. Love for the sinner. Love for His people. Love for the multitude. But the message is repent. And the message is repent because of the love of Christ. Christ's love, seeing His people in their sins, desiring they would turn and they would repent. Repentance is the message. But this world, in all its ideology, in all its feelings, and this world in what it wants to do and what it wants to believe and how it wants to live their lives, will twist the message of God. They will add to Scripture. They will take away from Scripture Scripture, in their eyes, teaches something very different. They add to it. They take away from it. But yet, as believers, we can rest assured that whatever this world says, we can depend on the Word of God. It is complete. It is complete. There is a vast subject in front of us. We could delve into support and objections for continuationism. But let us just have this little insight that Christ is all we need that His complete Word is all that we need. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path always, to guide and to save me from sin. This is a paraphrase of the Word of God, by the way, not another version. A light to my path always, to guide and to save me from sin, and show me the heavenly way. Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against Thee, that I might not sin that I might not sin. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Dear believer, let us view the canon of Scripture as God's completed word. Let us hide it in our hearts, as the psalmist said, that we might not sin against Him. May His word guide us. May it be that light, that lamp to us. May we treasure all of the canon that God has given. May we reject those books, those ideas, those philosophies, all those things that add to God's inspired Word. May the Lord bless His Word this morning for His name's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Father, for the completed canon of Scripture. Oh, what a vast subject we have in front of us one that has been debated over the years, and one in which we find much error as well regarding the Apocrypha and the acceptance of it. But Father, we pray Thou would keep us close to Thy Word, to the completed canon. We thank Thee that we can depend upon it. We thank Thee that uh, Thy Word is settled forever. We thank Thee that it is something we can depend upon, for it will never be added to. And we pray, O God, that in our lives we would hold fast to Thy Word. We would be guided by it. We would be guided into a great knowledge of Christ. We would be guided into knowing more of Thee day by day. 
would be guided into that closer walk with thyself. Father, we do pray that thou would bless us now, and as in a few moments we come to worship thee, may we do so in spirit and in truth, rejoicing in the God of our salvation. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.